Welcome to Find Flow, a podcast on the ebb and flow of the IT operations management scene. We take a deep dive into the latest developments on IT operations management, IT service management, and AI ops. Find Flow episodes are on iTunes and Spotify, and remember to subscribe. I'm your host, Sean McDermott, and this is Find Flow. Welcome, everybody. My name is Sean McDermott. I'm your host. Uh, today, I have with me Phil T., the CEO and founder of MoveSoft. So as everyone knows, uh, we've kind of been talking about season two is really about us focusing in on the products and the vendors in the market today and understanding what they have to offer. So we are, uh, I'm, I'm honored to welcome Phil. You know, Phil, you and I have known each other for 20 years. And welcome back to the podcast. You were on, uh, you were on uh, last season just kind of talking about AI ops in general. So welcome back. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Sean, and um, you know, always keen to support further education about such an important subject. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've uh, pretty much dedicated your life to it, as uh, and we uh, we've known each other for a very, very long time, back to the Microviews and Riversoft days. So, uh, so I'm keen to kind of understand uh, uh, and get you to kind of talk about that history with regards to what you guys are doing yeah. today. But before we get started, why don't you just kind of give a quick bio about yourself so everybody kind of understands what you've done and, and what led you here? Yeah, so so I guess um, kind of going back to, you know, where we first met at Microme is probably what I'm, I'm best known for all of those years ago um, is is writing uh, at least the first couple of versions of, of NetCall and then leading that team as we as we co-founded Microme and brought NetCall to market. And you know, I kind of got into that, uh, you know, everybody's got an accidental story of falling into the software industry. And my accidental story was, you know, as a, as a struggling academic, a theoretical physicist, I needed to earn money and uh, found my way into a company called Avantgarde. That's sort of where I learned really the, you know, the, the, the bones of the operations um, uh, discipline in, in, in software and saw an opportunity for my communities. But, you know, the key theme that has followed me all the way through is this need to be able to understand the data that people monitor in an operational context and kind of give them a timely indication of actions that they can take to avoid customer impact. You know, stop the network going dark, stop the application failing to be, um, you know, available. And this has been a problem that has haunted uh, the commercial use of technology since, um, you know, that fateful time when the CEO of American Airlines sat next to Tom Watson Sr. Um, on a flight and, you know, bought the first mainframes uh, 50, 60 years ago. Um, so, so this is, um, you know, it's a, it's a key discipline. It's evolved a lot and, you know, through Micromuse and Riversoft um, and now onto Mooksoft, essentially what we've been doing is throwing ever more complex and ever more capable um, technical solutions to ever more complex and ever more difficult to understand infrastructures that have evolved as businesses have sought to um, deliver services more and more increasingly digitally intermediated and, you know, with better and better uh, capability, functionality and quality of service for their customers. And, you know, MOOCsoft, we've been sort of very proud to, you know, to pioneer the use of AI and techniques as the you know the latest phase in that evolution. So you know there you go, nearly three decades of um, of trying to fix the same problem, which brings me in mind of somebody called Max Planck, who is famous as a physicist who 
after he was lauded and given a Nobel Prize, said, well, he failed at so many things, he had to get something right eventually. Um, so uh, it feels like a lifelong's work, and I don't think it's ended anytime soon. Well, you uh, you certainly have dedicated your life to <laughs> operations and and making operations better. And and uh, I, you know, I've spent the last twenty five years, and, and man, we go we go way back to the very very beginnings of this. And um, yeah, when you first put your first guy at, at uh, Micromuse on U.S. shores, and uh, and I, I actually think he works for you now, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, well, he, so. he, he doesn't like the title I, I kind of refer to him as as F-Bog, First Boots on the Ground. Um, yeah. But he absolutely was. He had Dan in Richardson, Texas, working with a guy called Ken Barr, um, yeah. when Mike Ramirez was two people uh, in the U.S. Um, he was the first technical dude. Yeah, exactly. And so it's been quite a ride. And, and you're right. It's just, We continue to kind of fix the same problem, but the problem just gets more and more complex, you know, mm-hmm. every year. And therefore, you got to apply new and new technologies to it. And that's what's exciting to us about AI yeah. ops and where we're going with it. So so let's spend a little bit of time. Uh, we do this with everybody. Let's spend about 10 or 15 minutes talking about your perspective on AI ops, where we are today, and where yeah. you think we're going in the next, say, three to five years or whatever timeline you, you feel is relevant. Sure. Uh, so... So let's go back to the beginning um, of, you know, why there is, in my view, a thing called AI ops. And I suspect that uh, the starting point is sort of the mass uh, deployment of virtualization technology in the enterprise. So, you know, VMware and uh, virtual machines, I guess, 2008 um, or there or thereabouts onwards, people started really um, deploying it at scale. And, you know, what, what we became aware of, myself and Mike Silver, my co-founder, was it was around about that same time that, you know, we started kind of getting reached out to by old customers of ours from the Riversoft and the Micromuse days. And they were saying pretty much the same thing, which is we can't use the correlation in NetCall anymore. And, you know, when you dug into what they really meant by that, um, what they were saying was the correlation in, in NetCall, like most legacy products, most products, frankly, still today, um, uses a rule base so literally a long list of if-then-else um, statements, you know, if A matches B, then do this, um, that tries to hunt I, I remember writing a lot of those rules back in the day. <laughs> you know, it's scary. I mean, we, we were looking at one the other day, which was a trap um, processing module from an existing NetCall um, implementation. You know, tens of thousands of lines of, mm-hmm. of if-then-else statements. Um and, you know, but it's not just the old products. I mean, there are modern products um, that use regexes uh, and, and think they're doing something, you know, magic. And it's really just a matching rule um, in that regard. But, you know, it's so so, that, so they've got all of these statements. And what they're trying to do um, fundamentally is say, these are the ways in which my fixed infrastructure can break. And these are the alerts that that produces now go hunt for those alerts, and if I see them, conclude this is how my fixed infrastructure broke. And, of course, the, the logical fallacy in that is that the infrastructure is fixed. As soon as you have um, virtualization and other kind of um, infrastructure as code, I guess is the more modern term for it, uh, type uh, uh, stuff in your environment, the rules-based system fails. So you know, Mike and I scratched our head a fair bit about this, and... 
And we were kind of, well, you know, surely, you know, IBM will sort this out, right? I mean, it's, you know, they've got, you know, thousands of, of researchers on staff and, you know, they own Netcall now, so they'll, you know, they'll fix it. But, you know, this, this, this reach out kept and, and they were fa- And they were famous for, for Watson, right? Which was... Yes. Yes, Watson, indeed. Um, it's very good at playing chess. Um, but, uh, you know, there you go. Which, by the way, is another rules-based system, which is a very large one. Um, so if anybody's seen the Queen's Gambit, will attest. Um, quite talented. But, but, but in any case, um, uh, you know, the, the reach-out kept together in Honda. We were scratching our heads thinking, you know, what can be done about it? And coincidentally, uh, you know, what Mike and I were up to at that time was we both decided to start an incubator in the UK dedicated to try and work out how you can take sort of next-gen um, uh, innovations that were current in academia at the time and turn them into companies. And what most people were talking about um, was a rebirth of, of statistical machine learning, in essence. So natural language processing was the, was the buzzword that was flying around a lot. And the idea was, was if you have a lot of data, um, you know, what techniques can you use to kind of infer and deduce meaning from the data? And it all kind of came to a head in, 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 at, a, at a lunch. Uh, Mike and I went with um, uh, some senior people at Deutsche Bank, I think it was at the time. And, you know, we had a few glasses of wine and, you know, an argument broke out where Mike basically challenged me. He sort of said, he said, well, you know, Phil, you know, you know, you talk a lot about all these capabilities with machine learning. I bet you can't use it to fix the root cause analysis problem for virtual infrastructure. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of, I kind of don't like being goaded in that way. It's almost a bit like sort of back to the future. Don't call me chicken. It's like, don't tell me I can't do it. Um, so, so I sat down and started trying to work it out and we came up with an idea for the company that became MOOCsoft and, you know, we started down the path and, you know, when we, I'll never forget very, very, very early on, Sean, um, cause we, we, we acquired Unibank Switzerland as a, as a design partner, really. They weren't really a customer at the time, but you know, they were, they were certainly paying us money, which was nice. Um, um, we were out in Zurich talking to an executive there that, um, that ran a whole bunch of their, uh, IT operations, uh, inside of the bank. And I remember him saying to me, so, you want to use artificial intelligence to run my network? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, it's, it's the only thing that can solve the problem that you've got with all this virtualization. He said, yes, but, but if it gets the wrong answer, who do I fire? I can't fire a software program. But if my operators get it wrong, I can fire them. And, and it was kind of, we, we did run into a lot of that kind of, what yeah. do you mean you're using robots to run the system? You must be mad. So where do you see it going? Like, so you and I have had a lot of conversations and I can refer everyone back to season one podcast Mm -hmm. and uh, the conversation we had there. I think it's one of the first episodes we released. And uh, we talked about, you know, AI ops and kind of, where do you see it going now? Like what's, so so, so nine months later, right? This technology moves fast, right? Everything's kind of moving fast. So we're nine months from the last podcast. So where do you see, what have you learned in the last nine months and where do you see things going in the next, say, three to five years or whatever timeline you find is relevant? So, you know, I would say that, um, you know, the, the first thing is, is, is to focus on the customer. And, you know, what, what has been going on in the last nine months with the customer is, uh, whether it's the large enterprise um, or, or otherwhere, 
um, you know, people have been getting used to this much more sort of remote way of working and, you know, distributed form of, of operations. And it's kind of forcing um, centralized IT to think and behave a little bit more like distributed um, SRE and DevOps um, and accelerating changes. I think, you know, with all of us, um, you included, Sean, we've been calling, you know, um, out as the future for a number of years, uh, you know, this kind of much more application owning of, um, of, of operations and responsibility for availability. So, so this is kind of, it's doubled down um, and widened uh, on a use case basis, the, the types of telemetry um, that the, we need to start including in our analysis. So, so we started MoveSoft um, very focused on events and, and logs alerts, you know, the kind of the point in time notifications of, of status. Um, and, you know, where we are today is, is we've, we've significantly added the traditional observability um, telemetry into that. So, you know, metrics um, and related traces, um, logs to a lesser extent today, but, you know, that, that, will, that will come. Simply because, you know, you need to be able to give much more depth um, in the diagnosis of um, an outage or a failure of a given application. And so, you know, that has been key. And what that does is it is it sort of put pressure on the evolution of the algorithms um, that you use to to do this kind of deeper analysis. Because you need to be able to both do it at scale and also do it with, um, you know, a significantly uh, uh, broadened set of data that you're doing it on. So there's a continual sort of poacher gamekeeper thing going on here where, you know, the problem continues to get more complicated. Um, that seems to be uh, a law of the universe. Um, and, you know, what we have to do as a software vendor is continue to upgrade um, our capabilities. I mean, you know, we filed somewhere in the region of 54 patents at Moonsoft and 30-odd, 35 of them, I think, now are granted. And we continue to file at the rate of one or two a quarter, um, which reflects the fact that we... Um, and MOOCsoft have a team that is dedicated to looking at the data that we get and evolving additional algorithmics that we put into the product. So, you know, we've added in the last year significant new capability around anomaly detection with metrics. There's more to come uh, on that front, uh, quite significantly more to come. We've been doing work on, you know, automated correlation definition um, uh, uh, sort of discovery uh, which is applying some uh, aspects of genetic algorithms um, to the job of auto-configuring the tool. Um, we've been um, extending other um, use of importance metrics. I mean, we've, we've pioneered the use of information theory um, to uh, spot significant events many, many years ago. And now we're looking at uh, different ways of using dependency graphs um, to improve upon that, including pioneering something which is so novel um, even uh, in academic circles, it's poorly understood, which is, um, you know, the shape and topology of, of, of graphs um, that we're starting to um, see has practical utility. So I would say that the, the, the significant change is the shift to remote has driven people into more of an SRE DevOps kind of mindset, even if they're not all the way um, mm -hmm. into that way of, of working. And, and for us, it's, it's, it's broadened uh, the types of data that we consider um, as kind of fair game for AI ops. Yeah, I think I think you know this idea of DevOps and SRE is probably you know there's you and I've been in this game for a long time, and 
there's been a couple major shifts, right, over the years. And I think this, you know, as infrastructure has become more and more fault tolerant, just built um, into the OS, uh, yeah. it's become more reliant on the fact that really the, the focus should be on the application, right, and the service that's being delivered and the experience of what your end users you're looking for. So, and that becomes much more complicated with the vast amount, the, the, the complexity of application development and application architecture now and the massive amount of instrumentation. So to me, you know, AI ops is, is a natural, um, natural offshoot of what's been coming for a while, and that is a shift towards the, the application itself and the experience and instrumenting that. And by doing that, you're creating massive amounts of data that then has to be processed that we as humans can't process, right? So, yeah. and so, all right, so this is this is good stuff. So let's move into, um, you know, MOOCsoft. Let's talk about MOOCsoft and what you guys are doing. I'm, I'm very keen on a couple things to kind of bring up to you. I'll let you, you, you talk about what you want, but um, indulge me and, and hit on a couple things because uh, I've, I've known, like I said, we've known each other a long time. I've known your work. I, we were a big, uh, all disclosure, we were a big MicroMuse partner back in the day. And, um, you know, one of the things that we focused on a lot was scale, right? And yeah. MicroMuse at the time was really the only platform that could scale for our customers, which were large financial institutions and telecommunication companies. And, and I mean, that technology is still out there, right? And, you know, so, so talk, when you, when you talk a little bit about what you guys are doing and, and kind of highlight to the audience what they, what MoogSoft is really all about, hit on that a little bit on scale, because that to yeah. me is, is kind of near and dear to my heart. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, back to the old days of, of Netcall, you know, that was, that was a primary consideration. I mean, when you're dealing with, um, uh, you know, uh, I remember the sort of the big first push of the internet, you know, when you had guys like Unet going around doubling the size of their network every 72 days. Um, you know, if you can only process um, four or five events a second, um, you know, you, you kind of you kind of hold below the waterline in terms of being able to cope um, with uh, stuff at scale. And, um, you know, certainly as you start to extend uh, into uh, other forms of telemetry like metrics, time series data, you know, the scale requirements become uh, increasingly high. But here's something which I've observed, you know, le legacy is a term that consumes all. I mean, it's undoubtedly the case that, that Netcall is a legacy product. We were looking and say it's old, um, you know, it's designed for a world that, you know, doesn't um, necessarily exist anymore. You pointed to the infrastructure is so reliable, people care about applications, which is absolutely a thing. Um, I mean, who cares about SNMP these days, um, as an example? You know, it is much more sort of application focused. But, you know, there are, there are seemingly modern providers of software in this market that are frankly legacy, um, you know, that yeah. designed their SaaS platforms, um, you know, eight or nine years ago that are bounded to, you know, a handful of events per second that claim to do AI when really all they're doing is, um, you know, smart filtering and, um, you know, rules-based matching of alerts. 
And you know, the truth of the matter is, is, is that a modern infrastructure demands a vendor that continuously reinvents itself. Um, you know, which is why Microsoft has has gone through you know major platform um, reimaginings, including an entirely net new SaaS infrastructure that is you know um, that is 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 SaaS version two, if you like, um, capable of dealing with tens of thousands of um, ingested data points a second. We have customers up in the 50, 60,000 um, range so that you can comfortably consume the metrics and the events and process them through um, an AI infrastructure that is adept at being able to discover patterns and uh, automatically pinpoint um, incidents uh, that, that need action. And I would venture that, um, you know, there's going to be a shakeout as people realize when they're, you know, um, looking for a vendor in this space, that the stuff that, that looks like it's shiny, claims to be SaaS, claims to be AIOps, turns out to be a first-generation SaaS product using a rules-based system. It's kind of, you know, in the tortured, fevered imagination of Netcall circa 2007, probably how they viewed the future. Well, the future doesn't look like that. The future looks like a tool that can cover the entirety of the observability data sets um, and provide timely insights um, using advanced algorithms that are easy to use because they're advanced um, and, you know, delivering in a package that can scale. So, so let's talk about like your key differentiator. So um, obviously yep. scale is one of them, right? And um, yep. you highlighted on that. What are some of the other key differentiators? I mean, I know you guys, your situation room and things like that. There's a lot of really interesting things about your platform that you guys brought to the table around collaboration and things like that. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, collaboration is important. Um, although to us now, we, you know, we see that much more as a, as a blended picture. So it's not just about what you can do in our tool, but it's how you, um, interact with, you know, Slack, uh, for example, mm -hmm. and, and other RRC tools um, that perhaps are, are more last gen than, than the tool like Slack, but, you know, Microsoft Teams, Microsoft Teams and, you know, uh, Zoom and so on and so forth all become important as well. And, and part of the reason for that is at the origin, um, as we started developing and conceiving of um, the algorithms that we use to do um, incident detection, you know, we realized that what you would start to find is that the instance would reflect reality and not reflect how people organize their problem remediation team. So in other words, um, you know, typically an instance doesn't involve one discipline. You'll get alerts covering an application, infrastructure, database, compute. Um, and what you don't want to then do is kind of work out which one of those disciplines you escalate to in a siloed fashion. So we conceived of the situation room as a way of bringing multiple different perspectives to view and to fix a problem in very much the same way that in larger companies, major incident war rooms are, are, have been conducted, you know, for time and memoriam. So the idea is, 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 is trying to elevate um, that sort of collaborative um, teaming approach to solving problems to basically be there for, for every problem. So that's a key differentiator, but, but honestly, I wouldn't go, you know, if I was trying to convince somebody as to why Moogsoft is a better solution, I'd almost begin and end with a correlation because unless you get that right, um, anything that you do downstream to the problem is highly suspect. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, you could end up just chewing up people's time. Um, 
sort of incorrectly. And, you know, I continue to be amazed that, uh, you know, just some of the stuff that we consider almost to be table stakes in how we do incident detection really isn't. So I'll give you a very simple example. Um, so how we um, typically generate an incident is we'll, we'll, we'll get alerts um, or anomalies or metrics coming in, and we'll start to conclude that there is a grouping of, of this data that corresponds to an impacting instance, and we'll raise an instance start process. But, you know, things are not fixed in time. So, um, you know, events change. So you might get an alert from uh, a critical application that starts out as a minor alert and then becomes a major alert, and maybe the description changes or, you know, the additional other metadata is attached to the alert. You know, to the best of my knowledge, every single one of our competitors only considers the initial state of the alert, which means that everything that goes on after that is not taken into account as you decide what is the root cause and what is the, the shape of the incident that you're um, passing down the line. That's crazy. I mean, that is actually nuts that people think that that's the solution because it really isn't um, because, you know, the world isn't that simple. And so we find ourselves oftentimes when we're doing uh, competitive bake-offs or, you know, other demonstrations, people scratching their head and seeing that we actually capture things that the uh, competitor products don't um, or we capture them in a more sort of um, elegant and timely fashion. And, you know, it, it's a very, very simple thing. The fact that, um, you know, the, the timeline, when you look at a data set and you're trying to decide that there's an incident there, you know, that is a decision that you're making that is contextualized in time. And depending upon the window of time that you use to dis make those decisions, you get a different answer. And so a lot of the um, innovation in our algorithms is having a flexible windowing of that time. All of the competitive products, fixed in time. So, so you know, depending, if you get that sample rate right, great, you'll get the answer right. But it will only be right for that particular instant, and it's likely wrong for all others. So having that flexibility in, in, in correlation time is, is vitally important. And I could go on and on and on at the, in, in, in terms that probably descend into a kind of a slightly geeky arcana of correlation technology. But the, the general point that I'm trying to make is, you know, there are hundreds of years of experience and investigation and pure research that have gone into building our ML and AI-enabled solution. And as I look around the market, there's just a lot of people wrapping up regexes and, you know, hard matching and rules-based systems and declaring it to be AI ops because they don't want to admit that they're legacy. Gotcha. Gotcha. So one, one quick question regarding that. So when you guys, when you think about grouping together, right, so you start seeing mm -hmm. an initial outbound, what is some of the techniques that you guys are using for grouping things together? I mean, obviously... Topology, connectivity, things like that. What are what are some of the things that you know people should know about that? Because it really is in the end the core, right? The correlation and core. You're right. Cool. If if you're not if you're not correlating the the problem correctly, and I, your point around the timeline uh, and expanding or contracting that timeline appropriately, then anything you hand off to a team through any kind of you know notification or, or other downstream processes flawed. But, you know, kind of go a little bit even further, you know, to the beginning yeah. of, of how these things get grouped together and what you guys think about from that. So, you know, it, it, it boils down to a single word, 
which is similarity. And and then you get into the the various different things. So you know, I you know, I pick up two random objects on my on my desk. You know, they are um, a little uh, thingy from the Geiger Museum in Switzerland and my mobile phone. Um, you know, how are they related? Well, you know, you would start to ask questions about similarity. Um, you know, attributes of them. And then use algorithms to to work out whether or not they belong together. And these attributes can be many, many, many different things. Now, I mean, to you and I, these look nothing, uh, you know, they're completely dissimilar. But if I pick up another object, um, which was a little statue of philosopher that was given to me by a, a team member in, in, in our Indian group, um, you know, all of a sudden there's a lot more similarity between mm -hmm. these two things and there is between, um, you know, the Geiger alien and, and my mobile phone. And so it boils down to um, different techniques for extracting those attributes that you then compare for similarity um, and mapping those techniques back to, if you like, the, the real world consequence of it. So you said a couple of them. So, you know, topology, um, you know, how close in a, an infrastructure or a dependency are, you know, the sources of this alert and this time series metric? Um, and are there ways in which I can, you know, say that there's some overlap, not exact match. That's kind of key because when you're doing exact matching, you're doing rules. Um, but is there some kind of overlap? The other um, aspect uh, is time. Time's a very important part of how um, how uh, situations and incidents evolve. Um, but time in a non-trivial way. So patterns of occurrence are two alerts. Do two alerts share? the same pattern of occurrence um, and are occurring at the same time may cause you to conclude that they are related in some way. You know, I never cease to be amazed at how language, like you would never think that language in an alert, which is usually a pretty compact bit of text, can tell you so much about whether two given alerts are similar to each other, providing you are able to, in essence, fuzzy match the text. So you don't require, you know, the two sentences to be, you know, word perfect, identical to each other, but you can pick up areas of overlap. We'll give you hints when to pull them together. Um, and then, of course, there's the more supervised techniques um, to to use a term that's, that's more technical in machine learning, which is where you look to see how people have responded to an instant or an alert in the past and use those to correlate them together. Change. Um, you know, I think one of our competitors all of a sudden um, decided that there's nothing more to the world other than correlating change. Well, we've been doing this for years and years and years, and it's just a, um, a you know a thing which we all understand that if there is active change going on in an environment and stuff changes at the same time as you discover a set of alerts or um, metrics becoming anomalous or interesting, that you might want to point the um, the application owner or the incident owner to that change incident. Although you may want to do something more sophisticated than just go and look up all change requests occurring plus or minus 30 minutes uh, from the date of the start of the incident, particularly when you don't know when the start of the incident is. And so we do that again using similarity-based techniques of matching. So not everything about a change incident may overlap directly with the um, incident you're considering. So in essence, it's, it really all boils down to you have what you know, you look at all of the metadata about what you know, uh, all of the contextual information, 
And then you look for patterns of overlap and similarity and use that to deduce where your um, active incidents are. Gotcha. So let's talk, uh, let's talk about a couple more things. Um, I, I know that you guys have done this, your, your new next gen platform and um, you've been, you've been in the SaaS world for a while and now, you know, even more mm -hmm. all in on SaaS. So talk about that as um, one of your key, key things going yeah. forward for customers. Yeah, so we um, we absolutely uh, you know recognise that um, there is going to be a a, a very evolved um, hybrid uh, future for for all of our customers, um, and and what this typically means is people don't want to own the platform. Um, you know, they don't want to own the platform on which they are running uh, their operations software, just like they don't want to own their platform on which they're running their accounting software. And so the pressure for for us to be able to offer a really um, good SaaS experience for our customers has been there for a while. And we decided a few years back that we were going to reimagine um, our platform and build a next-gen um, version of it that was SaaS first. And, and that's really what we've been up to. And we've used it as a, an opportunity to rethink through how we scale and how we um, you know, offer um, uh, our software to, to our customers. We want the experience to be much more SaaS-served. Um, so that people can, um, you know, kind of get there uh, as much as possible on their own. Um, so that what we're doing is we're not spending time and chewing up their time, um, teaching them how to do the trivial stuff, but really spending our time um, and, you know, for that matter, um, you know, your time, um, helping them solve the thornier business problems around operations. Um, and so, you know, we, we we've sort of we sort of reimagined it from the ground up. It's a you know, it's a, um, a you know a, 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 a new platform rather than a new product. Um, you know, the capabilities that people were aware of in our last um, gen uh, carry forward through into this new platform. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, functionality will seem very familiar. Um, it'll just be easier to live with. And you know, we uh, went from um, an, an upgrade process that was um, kind of much more sort of enterprising. Um, you know, and I like to tell people that today, um, because it's a day with a Y in it, um, there could be five to ten updates to the entirety of our SaaS infrastructure and nobody will notice mm -hmm. because there's zero downtime, um, you know, zero um, interruption uh, CICD built. And we also wanted to change how we engineered um, at MOOCsoft as well. Um, so we look like our customers. You know, we, you know, our SRE team spends a lot of time in the community talking to other SREs. Um, you know, we use our own product to manage our own estate um, very actively. In fact, we call it champagne rather than drinking your own Kool-Aid uh, internally, and it does a nice job for us. Um, but, you know, all in all, it's been about trying to reduce the cost of ownership of AIOps for our customers. And, you know, we've had the advantage of being able to build a SaaS version 2 platform, which means that um, we are available, um, you know, all over the globe with, you know, we cover all of Amazon's um, availability zones pretty much. And, you know, fairly soon we'll be able to offer it as a multi-cloud um, environment as well. Um, so it's it's very flexible, very easy for us to live with, and therefore very easy for our customers to live with. Yeah, good. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's been an interesting road with SaaS, right? I mean, if you would have thought back yeah. 10 years ago, I mean, there wasn't a single person in IT, uh, especially in the infrastructure operations, that ever would have considered doing anything related to using a SaaS platform. 
Yeah. And I think ServiceNow kind of broke that ceiling, really um, mm -hmm. kind of shattered it. And, you know, the benefits are just out there. I mean, I'm, I mean, my first software company was on-prem and now, you know, we're running a SaaS platform and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing from, from all sides, right? The customer experience is so much better. The engineering experience is better. The, the ability to roll out updates and fix things in the background that people don't even, as you said, don't people don't even know about. It's fantastic. And I think in your world, the ability to, to modify and load in new algorithms and just kind of release things out into the, the, the community is, is excellent. So um, last area we want to kind of talk about is metrics, right? Um, yeah. You want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And, and it kind of goes back to a couple of comments I made earlier. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, that we always kind of did have in our mind as, as a thing that we wanted to do was to, was to broaden um, the types of data that we consider in our analysis to include time series data, you know, the classic sort of floating point delivered once every, you know, fixed period of time. So, you know, CPU load on a server um, measured every 30 seconds, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And, you know, we really didn't have any kind of answer to that in, uh, in you know, in the early days at Movesoft. And the so what about it is, you know, things fail in a different way now. Um, you tend to get brownouts rather than blackouts. You tend to get, um, you know, stuff that will degrade over a period of time, then catastrophically fail. And and what the metrics allow us to do is to reach back into the, the kind of the origin of a service impacting instance and provide just much more detail um, for uh, somebody faced with a problem that they're trying to remediate um, to allow them to diagnose and fix it um, faster. So it's kind of broadening the context for an incident. And it just simply is the case that typically um, things degrade before they fail. Um, so if you can capture the degradation period, you may be able to avoid downtime. And that degradation period is entirely um, sort of um, characterized by um, uh, is characterized by metrics rather than events. So, so you bring up an interesting point, right? Because being able to to capture metrics and look at degradation, uh, that would also help you in in dynamic thresholds and things like that, right? Yes. Because Absolutely. as we all know, I mean, some applications consume. Um, normally would consume higher versus others, right? And that's not yes. necessarily a bad thing. You just need to know what norm is and adjust accordingly. In the old days, we would set threat, we'd set rules, right? We would say, hey, if the yeah. utilization goes above, you know, 80% kick off an alert. I was like, well, that application could be normally running at 85, 90% all the time, and that's right. normal, right? So uh, the, do your metrics take that into account? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when we started thinking about doing metrics, the first question that we asked ourselves was, well, you know, how would an AI ops platform do metrics? Um, you know, and certainly what it wouldn't do is it wouldn't, um, uh, it wouldn't, you know, set a rule, uh, you know, a manual threshold. Um, because, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's back to the, you know, when is this data point an interesting data point? And you need, it's interesting in the context of all of the other values it's ever had before. Everything has meaning relative to everything else as opposed to as an isolated data point. So we built in dynamic thresholding. Um, we built in the capability for us to um, improve our thresholding as we see more data. Uh, we do some stuff which is, you know, it's kind of subtle but important. 
um, like rather than uh, you know make assumptions around technicalities like the central limit theorem that you know all numbers are randomly distributed in a normal distribution around the mean, which only really works in some very um, sort of limited constrained uh, features of the data that you're looking at. You know, we do a much more model-based approach to understanding the distribution of a given data point and then trying to work out where an individual um, uh, item is relative to that. So it's very flexible. Of course, there is still the capability if you want to put a hard limit on, you know, I don't care what you think, tell me when it goes over 85%, that can be done. Um, but we try and build into this model not just the point of telling you when you've got an anomalous value, but how anomalous it is in terms of the alert and event that we raise. And it's an area as well where there is very, very, very active innovation going on at MoveSoft. And I think through the course of the next year, some of the more dramatic improvements um, to the algorithmic capabilities of the platform are going to come as we roll out some recent work that we've been doing around the use of um, AI techniques like um, long-term, short-term memory neural nets, recurrent neural nets, to the job of anomaly detection, which will be pointing at some cherry-picked um, uh, uh, data series rather than all of them, just because it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a big uh, sledgehammer. So you wouldn't want to crack every walnut with it. Um, but there's a lot of innovation coming down the line with that. But already, um, the platform is is, you know, able to automatically deduce. Um, when a metric is anomalous, which is a huge advance. Yeah, good stuff. Well, I think we're coming up on our time. Anything else you want to cover? Any any exciting things that you got? You, you, any any crazy announcement you want to make that uh, <laughs> we'll hear here first, or or just any anything to kind of wrap it up that you think your customers I, might want to hear about? I love it. I love it. The crazy. Well, here's one thing that that has been uh, a real joy in the course of the last uh, year. I mean, of course, Microsoft has been grappling like every other business with, you know, enforced remoteness, although mm -hmm. we've, we've embraced it. I mean, we've decided that Microsoft is going to be a remote first company um, going forward. But, you know, as part of the launch of the new product and, you know, there is a self-serve capability um, in, in, and in fact, please go to uh, our website, Microsoft.com and sign up for a trial if you're listening. Um, but as part of that capability, just the reach with what we've been able to touch um, customers so massively um, extended, we doubled our customer base in the course of the last nine months, which I think is just nuts. Um, you know, I've, I've not seen that uh, in my career where, you know, a relatively mature business um, like Microsoft manages to pull off a doubling of its customer base. That's kind of, that's kind of crazy. And I think um, there are big tectonic forces at play at the moment uh, in our industry and expect big change. I feel like a 21-year-old guy um, all over again in this industry. It is so exciting, um, so um, you know, so fast-paced and so fast-moving, and has zero tolerance for people who want to sit back on their laurels and think they've got it all figured out. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a it's an exciting time. I, I uh, you know, like you and I are probably about the same age, and um, I just I just had a birthday yesterday, and. Um, yeah. You know, I feel more excited now about what's going on than I have in a really long time. And it's just for people who are, are curious, you know, about innovation and future. Now it's just a really great time. And, and so I appreciate you coming on board uh, today. And as always, you know, you're 
uh, I will say uh, I always enjoy talking to you because you're an incredibly smart guy that's able to make uh, very complex uh, concepts sound sound uh, very easy. So, but I know that there's a, a tremendous amount of hard uh, work and math and physics and. And as an engineer, I was an electrical engineer that struggled through physics. I fully respect your background because I, uh, I absolutely could not do it. But um, appreciate you coming on board, and uh, we'll, we'll catch up soon. And, and uh, you know, good luck to you guys going forward, and, uh, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Right. Great to, uh, uh, great to chat, uh, Sean, as always. All right. Take care. Bye, Phil. Yeah. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining us in this week's episode. IT operations management is all about staying on top of the wave. Hit the like button, tell us what you thought about this episode, share and subscribe. And we'll see you next week on Find Flow.